Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at the new Zombieland 2, which is called Zombieland Double Tap. We're also going to look at the Netflix film, The Laundromat. We need to talk about some trailers, one in particular, the star new, new trailer for Star Wars just came out and we want to talk about it. So we're going to get to that. And before we get to everything, we need to talk about the news of the week. Our first story, the Batman casts Paul Dano as the Riddler. Yes, we have our villain or at least one of them for Robert Pattinson's The Batman. Andy, what do you think of Paul Dano? I'm really excited about this. Uh, first of all, love uh, Paul Dano. Might be Dano. I can never remember. It Anyways. might be Paul Dano. Now, now that you say that, yeah, I think you're totally right. But it's fine. Um, I first saw him in Little Miss Sunshine, and he's had a great career. Most uh, memorable as uh, Eli Sunday in uh, There Will Be Blood from 2007 or so with uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Incredible role. I um, mean, he's had a great career. He was also good in Prisoners. He's a fantastic actor, and I'm excited that he's going to be the villain and he's going to be the Riddler because we didn't actually know who the uh, villain was going to be. And I've been saying that I think the Riddler would be another great comic book villain that we haven't seen other than Jim Carrey's really silly portrayal in 1997. And this also means that Jonah Hill is out because he was kind of rumored to be uh, the Riddler in this. Yes, I'm excited for Mr. Dano as well. I'm excited for the Riddler in a modern Batman film. Yeah, we haven't seen him since Batman Forever, the Joel Schumacher film, when Jim Carrey played the role. I think there's a lot of potential for an interesting, kind of intriguing cat and mouse Riddler kind of game in the new Batman. I think that'll be really cool. And and I'm the, the thing that really stands out to me in this story is Jonah Hill being out, right? Because when we found this story earlier in the week, I mentioned that I, I, I had wondered if this... Jonah Hill being out and Paul Dano being in had anything to do with uh, public reception, right? Because when the Jonah Hill story came out, we covered it. A lot of other publications covered it. Um, Publications, podcasts, let me (laughs) be clear. Uh, And a lot of people talked, right? And people said Jonah Hill would be great or terrible. There's a lot of weird buzz and fervor around it. And I remember reading when Robert Pattinson's name got leaked as, as being cast as Batman there was a lot of that as well. And he said, Robert Pattinson said in an interview that he was really nervous that the studio might get spooked and back out. They might, they might say, Hey, we don't like the way people have reacted to this. We're not going to go with you. I wonder if that might've happened to Jonah Hill. Do you think that's a possibility? Maybe, maybe I, I, I feel like it's too early to, to say, you know, again, they were just rumors and we didn't even know who the, who the villain was going to be. Cause it said it, he, it might be the Riddler. It might be the penguin. Uh, so we weren't really sure, but, but you never know. No, you never know. So keep it here on Offscript for more on the Batman. We'll keep covering it because we both really want to see whatever this movie is yeah. going to be about. And, yeah, and I like that they're they're picking actors that are, are top-notch. And, I mean, Jonah Hill has flexed some acting chops before, but Paul Dano's much – I mean, he's just much more known as an actor. Same thing with Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. It's really shaping up to be a pretty uh, incredible cast. Yeah, and I think that says a lot about where superhero films are because it's surprising how many actors and actresses we haven't seen in superhero films yet, you know? Like, yeah. you look at Paul Dano and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess he hasn't been in one yet, I don't think, um, which is surprising, you know, but it seems like he would be a natural fit for it. So we'll see what happens, I guess. Our next story, uh, Netflix is sued over The Laundromat, the second movie we're covering this episode, so keep an eye out for that. Netflix sued over The Laundromat by the Panama Papers law firm yes uh the panama papers you guys remember that big financial scandal where we found out like 
1% of the world's wealth is stored in offshore bank accounts, and that was a whole thing, but nothing ever happened. Well, the pan- the laundromat has a little bit to do with that. Netflix has been sued over it. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, so the laundromat is about, like you said, the Panama pa- Papers, and specifically the, this company called uh, Mossack uh, Fonseca, which are the two lawyers depicted in the film and, and who had this shell company of shell companies in there, what this film is about and what the Panama Papers were about. So the, those two actual people have sued Netflix uh, because of how they are depicted in the film. And uh, they said it's tarnishing their reputations and all this stuff. Uh, the lawsuit was quickly dismissed and thrown out. And I mean, they were as much, they were trying to block the release of the film entirely. Um, not ju- not just sue Netflix. Uh, that of course failed. Didn't go anywhere. Netflix claimed First Amendment uh, rights, and uh, and the film w- was released. But it was it was interesting that it kind of happened right away. Yeah, it's something, and we'll talk about the laundromat, like I said, later in the episode. So keep an ear out for that. But before we get too far into it, just a brief kind of byline here. Uh, Jürgen Mossack and Ramon Fonseca are kind of our two narrators throughout the film, and they're also our two arguably antagonists in the film. They, 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 they play a, a strange kind of role in the movie. Um, it's, it's a little surprising to see they're so vocal about this. They said, uh, the film defames and portrays the plaintiffs as ruthless, uncaring lawyers who are involved in money laundering, tax evasion, bribery, and other criminal contact. And, 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 and Netflix described it as laughable. Uh, they, they, they're not even frightened at all. They don't care. Um, really something. And the, and I think because of the way the film portrays them, this is so funny, I guess to me is the word to look for, uh, odd. Um, we'll talk about that more, but, um, I, are you surprised it's getting thrown out, I guess, Andy? Cause I'm a little surprised. Uh, no, no, not, uh, not at all. You know, they're, they're trying to claim libel or slander or whatever, but I mean, this, this is a very public case. I mean, people, some people have like gone to prison or that there have been repercussions for, for the Panama papers and for them to say, well, th- this looks like we're engaging in law in money laundering. You were like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it's a silly lawsuit, but it, it was just interesting that, that it came up and that right as the f- film was being released, they, you know, they tried to last minute sue Netflix. Definitely. And speaking of Netflix, our last story this week, Netflix raising $2 billion in debt amid original content push in an effort to generate more original content for their streaming service. Netflix is going to be taking on an additional $2 billion in debt on top of their already $12.5 billion that they owe. There's a lot of angles we could talk about this, uh, the bubble of streaming services and how Netflix has so many subscribers, somehow still owes so much money. We've talked about that on the show before. I think the angle that's most interesting here is the push for original content. Original things, Andy. Yes, uh, with the advent of Disney Plus in just a few weeks and, of course, uh, Apple TV Plus, which I actually just keep forgetting about. Um, Original content is king because Netflix has learned the hard way you know, you can't, a license isn't guaranteed. Everyone's pulling their licenses from Netflix, trying to starve them of content. You know, Disney, uh, they've also lost Friends, Seinfeld, The Office. So they're losing all these big hit licenses. And so they realize they, they need to either create their own or fully purchase the property so that they can compete. Because in, in the streaming wars to come, uh, content is king. You know, it seems almost 
counterintuitive to me on its face to really push for original content because I get on Netflix and I scroll and there's so many original shows I'm not interested in that I don't care about because I feel like they're not catered to me and made for me. They're they're trying to tackle such a wide audience, like they're trying to hit so many people. But then I look at something like HBO, right? Uh, we were just talking about this earlier. HBO's new show, new series Watchmen just premiered uh, this last week. HBO is a kind of service where like I really don't need it, but there seems to always be like one show on there that's enough to keep me subscribed and keep me coming back. And it's all original content. There's always some something that's coming around, whether it be a new season of Silicon Valley or Watchmen or Westworld or Game of Thrones or whatever, that keeps me on the platform. That's what Netflix is looking for, right? They're just looking for that th- those couple of programs that are enough for you to go, you know what? It's worth it to keep my $14.99 a month subscription or however much it is now. Yeah, and that's what they're really missing. I, the closest thing I can think of is something like uh, Stranger Things, which has taken forever to come out, and it's. I think it's starting to lose its luster. And it's also it's one show as opposed to you know HBO has maybe five or six shows you could really get into. And it'll be probably a larger death of cinema segment at some point whenever this happens. But we'll we've seen Netflix is kind of making this push towards weekly formats now, especially with like the Great British Baking Show. Instead of dumping all their content at once, uh, they're going to start releasing things by week if it tests well. Um, I I would see them going forward with that, but it's got to be counterintuitive, right? To whoever's doing the accounting over there, they're like, wait, we're going to release less content, like content less often, you know, instead of all at once, we're going to dump, dump it out piece by piece. But Hey, maybe that's enough to keep subscribers around. They, they really got to do something, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the gloves are coming off, uh, in from Disney or Apple TV or NBC or everyone else who's starting their own streaming service. So Netflix has to fight back. They have to do something. Otherwise they're just, everyone's taking the slice of their pie. So they have to fight to, to keep what's theirs. Mm. Well, that about wraps the news for the week. Speaking of fighting back, we should talk about our first film of the episode. Andy's going to be taking the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away. Zombieland, double tap. It's time to nut up or shut up. So Zombieland Double Tap is the follow-up to the 2009 film Zombieland starring Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone, and Abigail Breslin as kind of this dysfunctional family roaming the wilds of post-zombie apocalyptic America. They all have uh, names that correspond to where they're from. Woody Harrelson is Tallahassee, Jesse Eisenberg is Columbus, Emma Stone is Wichita, and Abigail Breslin plays Little Rock. Um, the first film was a really charming small film that that had uh, smart ideas about the uh, the zombie genre. It was kind of doing some postmodern things, some doing thing doing things a little little bit differently. Had a ton of violence, um, but w- had interesting character arcs because our our characters started in one place, kind of selfish, and then kind of come to to work together as a team by the end. So we pick up ten years later. They are living in the White House <laughs> of all places. Um, we have a little. I'm just going to call him Emma Stone and <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg's yeah. character. Yeah, they're no. they're together in a. They end up together at the end of the first film, and they're together. And their their relationship is a little bit on the rocks. And Abigail Breslin is is all grown up now. She's a older teenager and. She kind of wants to leave the nest, and Woody Harrelson doesn't want that to happen. So we have a little, we have this dysfunctional family that is now having some growing pain, some family drama. 
eventually Abigail Breslin character makes a break for it, decides to leave. She can't take it anymore. She wants to, you know, find a boyfriend, uh, just see what else is in the world. And Jesse, Jesse Stone, Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone fall on some hard times as well. So she leaves. And so we said the setup of the movie is Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg going after them, kind of going on this wild chase while still having to dodge zombies, some of whom have evolved and are more vicious and more, uh, Persever- they persevere even more. I'm, right. I'm, I can't yeah, yeah. the right words. Anyways, that's our, our setup. It's got a lot of the same kind of style and humor and kind of things that break the fourth wall. We have a number of cameos. That's our setup. Zach, what'd you think? Well, I, you know, being a sequel that's coming, what, 10 years after the previous film? Uh, mm. I was definitely skeptical going to this movie, to say the least, but Zombieland at its core is a kind of character romp right we have these four kind of main characters from different places that are very very distilled uh versions of real people we have woody harrelson who is a a cowboy we got jesse eisenberg who's a nervous kid and we got emma stone who who doesn't take any shit like we have kind of these fun little characters and the way they bounce off each other in this zombie sandbox of a world is what's supposed to be fun and interesting 10 years after the previous film that, that, that was surprising back in the day for how charming it was, I don't think this movie quite gets there. I don't think it's it's quite what it needs to be to really stand on its own and be something um, that's worth the price of admission. But let's talk about it, because there is a lot in this movie that works and is redeeming, and so it might be the movie for you, I think. Andy, what did you think of this movie? So I was a little disappointed. You know, this is supposed to be... Uh a horror action comedy. Um, and it's none of those things. It's not really funny. There's a number of jokes that just don't land. It's it, it, and a bunch of cameos. People show up that you're supposed to laugh at. That's not funny either. Uh, the action is, is cool. Uh, well, actually the action is very violent. Like, you know, I was thinking about how everyone was complaining about Joker and oh the violence. And this is like 10 times as violent as, as Joker was. It's, uh, really kind of over the top, but we don't have kind of the excitement. I never feel like any of the characters are really in any danger. They all seem to kind of have plot armor. Uh, so it's not, the action isn't real exciting. A lot of it is really bad CGI as well. So it was okay. Uh, these are fun characters, but I feel like they just don't have much to do. I I think Woody Harrelson is great. Uh, He gives a good performance. Everyone else is just trying their best with a, a pretty mediocre script. I think. So where's the best place to jump into this? Because you, you, we've got a lot, right? We're picking up where we left off a decade after the original. We've got the world. We've got the action. We've got the characters. Where do you, where do you really want to jump in here? Let's start with performances. Good idea. I think that's fine. Um, I, I Like I said, I, I think the, these films primarily are character-driven films, right? We have these four kind of archetypes. We have the young girl. We have the older sister uh, who's, who's very independent. I mean, both of them are very independent, but... Um, we have Jesse Eisenberg's character, who is kind of this nurse, nervous, you know, uh, guy guy with rules and tries to kind of, you know, have a system in place for life. And we've got Woody Harrelson's character, Tallahassee, who is a, a free as a bird cowboy doing his own thing. And they're goofy and they're sarcastic. And in this film, I didn't find they were written quite as funny as they were in the previous films. There's some charming stuff. Woody Harrelson, I think, is good for a few laughs. You know, there's a couple... The, the way he'll kind of react to something goofy or or Emma Stone will will throw throw shade at him randomly in the middle of the film like that's pretty charming but ultimately like I, I think it's a little tough for these characters to slide back into their roles after so long and I think it shows like they're just not quite as organic as they felt in the first film 
Right. Well, also they they were smaller actors. They were all. I mean, Jesse Eisenberg wasn't the kind of character actor he's turned into. Emma Stone has turned into a megastar out of nowhere. Um, you know, it's it's just like right. Uh, it's it the film seems too small for her. Uh, Woody Harrelson is you know. He, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's he's been peak for for a while now. Um, he, uh, well, I mean, I don't mean that in the bad way. I mean, he's had he's been he's been riding a high for a pretty long time. Yes. Um, and you know, he fits right into that rugged cowboy kind of like rugged cop thing. He does really really well. Um, Abigail Breslin is fine. I feel like her she just doesn't have a lot to do. Like her what role the, is just last, written real fine. What was the last film you saw Abigail Breslin in? I can't remember. It's probably Zombieland One for me. Like honestly, it's. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. look up because I feel like that. I feel like she's done a lot more. She's done a lot of like Bloomhouse horror films. It looks like that's what I was seeing. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple television spots. There's a couple other performances in this movie that are worth mentioning. Uh, there's this woman named Zoe Dutch. Dutch, I think, is her name. Deutsch. Uh, who who plays a new a newcomer in the show in, in the in this movie? There's a couple of them uh, named Madison. Uh, she plays this very ditzy. Uh, kind of kind of stereotypical blonde wears pink works at the mall character um who i like honestly i i she's obnoxious but like got a couple laughs out of me in a couple spots i was like okay she's pretty you know she 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 really leans into the performance so i had to give her credit for that and i she's relatively unknown rosario dawson is in this film Uh, i i i've always loved rosario dawson that woman needs more work she's great um luke wilson thomas middleditch in this movie both pretty good um, but ultimately, yeah, our, our kind of four core characters, just not quite as much fun this time around. That that was kind of my general, yeah. Yeah, well, when we first meet um, Jesse Eisenberg's character, uh, I can't remember his name, Columbus, he, Columbus. you know, he, he's, he's very, he plays it real safe, like he has all these rules, and th- that was one thing that was really charming about the first thing, is that he goes through all his rules, like rule one is cardio, so you gotta run faster than the zombies, one of the, ru- ru- one of the rules is don't be a hero, and then that's one of the rules he breaks towards the end when he, he saves Emma Stones, and so that, that shows his character arc from kind of being selfish to being, you know, one to risk his life, care about others, these whole things, and that, we just kind of miss all that, we don't have really any character development past where they left off, and you know we we miss this dysfunctional family because it made more sense in the first film because they're strangers coming together now they've been li- living for together for 10 years presumably like uh at, th- at some point you, you shouldn't be really dysfunctional anymore <laughs> you should just be a, a normal family right uh, so the the dysfunction just it doesn't really work like i said it, none of the gags are are really that funny yeah, and and you're right. Like you can't ignore that they've been together for te- for a decade, for ten years. So when one of the characters does something that none of the other characters expect, it doesn't feel organic. Because like, why wouldn't they know each other front and back at this point? Mm-hmm. And there's definitely like this goofy thing they do with the Jesse Eisenberg Emma Stone romance. They walk it back like Ghostbusters two. Right? Because in Ghostbusters, that's a weird reference. Because in Ghostbusters two, uh, Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray. They ended up together at the end of the first film, but in Ghostbusters 2, they were like, well, we need to have some kind of romantic something. So they split up, and they get back together by the end of the movie. It's a very similar situation with these right. two characters in this film. Like, you have to have romantic drama somewhere. So you're like, oh, well, they're on the rocks now, but it turns out it, maybe it'll work out. Like, that's goofy. And you're right. It, it, it just feels like plot armor. Like, none of it's genuine. You kind of know where it's going. You also, you know none of them are, are going to be injured throughout the film, of course, because mm-hmm. being a zombie comedy, like, 
it's not very funny if our antagonists are murdered. So, um, you know, that that's kind of a bummer. That leads me to another thing is uh, actually kind of the portrayal of women or the use of women in this film is actually really problematic, I think. Yeah, uh, I agree, but, actually. But, yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, you know, because when uh, Zoe Deutsch's character shows up, uh, she immediately just like wants to, you know, hook yeah. up with Jesse Eisenberg. She's all over Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, you know? and and then so you have this weird friends situation where you know Emma, Emma Stone and Zoe Do- Deutsch are fighting over nerdy Jesse Eisenberg, which is like the biggest fantasy ever. And then when we we have uh, some other cameos, you know, oh, another older woman shows up and you know her and woody harrelson kind of have a thing so basically every woman in in the film is just there to be in a relationship with a guy and it's i'm pretty sure it probably fails the uh bechdel test uh same and the same goes for abigail breslin her she's in the same situation i want a boyfriend yeah abigail breslin is is genuinely sexualized in this film she wears low-cut tops you can see her bra and i get she's eight she's 18 years old maybe that's like part of the bit but like at the same time, like, you don't, she could just want, you know, companionship. Like, she doesn't have to be visually portrayed on screen that way. So, so that definitely felt weird. Let's talk about the action, right? Because, because like you said earlier, and like I just said now, um, our characters definitely don't feel like they're in any danger um, mm-hmm. because it's a zombie comedy. And we have these, these zombies have evolved in the world of Zombieland, right? So we're not just like generic zombies anymore. We have a couple of different types uh, that that are slower and faster and dumber and smarter. The the three that are outlined at the beginning are Homers, Hawkings, and Ninjas. Homers are stupid zombies. Hawkings are smart zombies, and Ninjas are very fast, quiet zombies. Uh, two of those don't even really come into the film again yeah. at all. <laughs> They're never seen from again. Straight up, and one of them is used as a gag right at the end of the movie, and that's it. Uh, then a new kind of zombie, a, high, uh, a super zombie is introduced. They called T-800 after the, the Terminator uh, 800 in the film, in, in the original movie, uh, the Terminator. What am I, where am I going with this? Anyway, there's, there's a new super zombie, right? And that's like the ultimate zombie danger. And by the end of the movie, you're just fighting all super zombies, which isn't any different from like normal zombies, really, except they're slightly harder to kill, but our yeah. characters aren't going anywhere. So, you know, they'll be fine. Like, just feels very disingenuous and it's like they were trying to evolve the formula right of zombie land but it doesn't it doesn't work yeah and also so on this this uh, thing about the the t-800s there's a number of film references and whenever they happen they're like hey guys this is a film reference t-800 oh you mean like from terminator 2 yeah of course terminator 2 like there's so much of that like there's a number of references and they tell you what the references are and they tell you what they're from and this also extends to a number of the jokes a lot of times they'll someone will set up a joke say the punchline and then we get told why we're we're supposed to be laughing at it like it's the writing is so bad in some of the places because you're being told hey this is a joke please laugh yes uh and then that definitely applies to a lot of the settings as well like the original zombie line definitely had a couple of goofy bits right the way uh woody harrelson's character is on the search for twinkies it's kind of a fun pop culture thing but also at the same time it gives our character like an odd motivation uh, the way in the first film they found Bill Murray's house, that was kind of neat. And you've got this whole kind of bit with Bill Murray. They try to expand on that here. Places we visit are things like the White House or an Elvis-themed hotel with a lot of Elvis memorabilia in it, which is neat, but ultimately, like, false, it, pointless and shallow, you know? Like, it, it's not really played for laughs anywhere. It's not really that interesting. 
Woody Harrelson's character Tallahassee having a fascination with like Elvis is cool, but also predictable and not ultimately like a real character <laughs> development, you know? Yeah. Do you know what I thought about that? I was like, this is the boomer storyline. Mm. <laughs> That's what this is in for. Cause he's yeah. talking. <laughs> so is, yeah. So yeah, he's super obsessed with Elvis and then he meets Rosario Dawson. Who's also obsessed with, with Elvis, even though she's like 20 years younger. Um, but he, you know, they have a conversation of uh, what, when, the, what was the moment you fell in love with Elvis? And he tells some high school story. And I'm like, so you're talking about a story in the 60s. <laughs> I was like, this is clearly aimed at an older audience, which is completely fine. But it just seems really ham fisted. Right. We do have these kind of three generations of storyline going, right? You've got your your older generation, Woody Harrelson, Rosario Dawson kind of romance thing happening. You've got Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone's Will They Won't They going on. And at the bottom of the barrel, you've got Abigail <laughs> Breslin with newcomer Avan uh, Hogia. Joe Jagia? I don't, I don't know how to say that guy's name, but uh, he plays a, a kind of hippie stoner that she's interested in named Berkeley, who is terrible. And, and honestly, like, I really overestimated him, just like the new character Madison. I thought both of them were going to be either somehow in cahoots or, like, secretly plotting some grander scheme under the surface or were in disguise or really acting like somebody they weren't to try to fool our characters. Like, nope. They're just shallow and vain. There's nothing really intriguing or interesting about them. Um, so that was a bummer. Uh, I, I really kind of expected more from the writing that way, but it just doesn't just doesn't happen. Right. So we've we pointed out quite a, a few negatives. What what would be some of the positives of the film? Okay. Well, here's one. Um, I did not think much of. Actually, this is going to come off a lot like a negative, but hear me <laughs> out. Uh, the settings in the film are initially very bland uh we we basically have our characters running around sound stages like very clearly um they're either in a car with some kind of green screen effect or or something going on where they're you know engaging back and forth or they're at one of like three or four different settings it's pretty basic and the world is very gray and drab and not very interesting but inside those settings inside the white house or graceland or wherever they're at it's kind of fun. There's a lot of cool stuff going on in the background. There's a lot of clever kind of scenery things. The, the White House is particularly interesting because they fill it with pop culture and famous paintings and like all kinds of stuff from the world that's left behind after the zombie apocalypse they've been able to get. So that, that's kind of neat. You know, there's like a basketball hoop in the Oval Office and like that stuff's kind of charming, I guess. I thought the practical sets were particularly interesting and I really didn't think the writing was all that bad. What, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to agree with you on setting. Uh, you know, a lot of times when they're driving places, they, they manage to find, I mean, they're filming on like abandoned bridges, abandoned roads that do look very post-apocalyptic. I thought that was pretty, pretty impressive that they found these locations. Uh, there's this running gag about having to drive a minivan, uh, which is pretty, which is, uh, pretty funny. Um, and, and again, it plays into this, this stereotype or this image of them on this, back back roads lonely roads that are cracking and there's plants growing on uh so yeah i i agree that the the setting was was pretty good i i think woody harrelson was very good i feel like he's having a good time uh he fits really it's like he kn- he knows how to take a bad role and really do a lot with it right he's he's really chewing the scenery like and it shows and and i think he was getting his paycheck and doing his thing so that wasn't so bad uh, yeah, the, 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 the moment-to-moment writing is okay. There's, there's a couple of good sick burns in here, which I enjoyed. Um, I, if, 
it feels like a handful of like SNL skits kind of thrown together. Like yeah. ind- individually they're okay, but like together they don't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and I, I was very... I know I need to look for the positives here, but again, just, just to kind of reiterate this, I was very disappointed by the lack of like kind of development of revealed things since 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 we're in the world of zombie land again the the ninja zombies seem so cool at the beginning and i was like man there's probably going to be a whole set piece where they're sneaking around a house and there's ninja zombies in there or something no no that never happens i was like man like they 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 really set that up to be something more than it was and i think that might just be a a good kind of all-encompassing look at this film uh the soundtrack was mediocre i don't remember the score or anything but you know free bird is in there and a couple other classic tracks that's kind of neat i guess yeah if you're an elvis fan i'm sure you'll get a kick out of a lot of the stuff that's going on there um there's a surprising amount of elvis in this film um there's a there's it's, a it's end, the, bo- it's the boomer storyline <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's something any other big thoughts in this movie i think i'm ready for recommendations andy would you recommend zombie land double tap i would save it for streaming it's I, you know, it's one of these two films that we watched this week. I felt should have been off the opposite. I felt I would have been, I would have liked to have seen the laundromat in theaters, and I would have liked to stay home and see Zombieland at home. It's, it's streaming caliber. It's Netflix caliber. Enjoy it when when it gets there. Inevitably, it's fun for an afternoon. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to say go out and buy a ticket right now or anything. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. I, I think it's. Uh you know, relatively charming on its face as a 10-year-old sequel. It's surprising they got the cast back together considering where they've all been. Um, It it is kind of a return to form for Zombieland, but I don't think it's as good as the original. When it comes to streaming, I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. Don't don't go see it in theaters. It's not worth the price of admission, I don't think. So, there you go. Uh, With that, we should move on to our... (laughs) I'd say the trailer park, but really it's only only one trailer. Andy, you want to do the honors here? Rise of Skywalker. Uh, so yesterday, the trailer for the final trailer for Episode Nine: The Rise of Sky- Skywalker was released in all its glory. Uh, what we see is about two and a half minutes of a bunch of Star Wars stuff. We see lightsaber battles. We see robots, ships, space battles. Some hints of what is looks like the Emperor. Some new worlds. Uh, it all kind of looks like a mess, and we don't really know what it, what's going on, uh, kind of plot wise, narrative wise. Uh, been a lot, a lot of hot takes, a lot of reactions uh, on the internet. Um, so, Zach, what did you what did you think of this trailer? You know, I was skeptical going in, I think, like most people walking into Star Wars. Ha ha. Uh, I, I have seen Episode 7 and Episode 8. And looking at this one, I, I'm really not sure what direction it's going to go in. And I think this trailer makes it pretty clear where things are headed. Um, it's okay. And I'm, I'm torn between feeling this great passion for Star Wars and the end of the saga and really not being too interested in what's happening happening immediately with these characters, you know? Because this trailer really touts this as the end of a nine-film saga and not the end of a three-film trilogy. Because as a trilogy, I kind of don't care. But as the end of what we know to be the Star Wars Skywalker saga, there's something a bit more interesting there. What do you think? Um... I feel like this is all over the place. I'm not really excited about it. Um... It, it feels like they're just turning everything Star Wars up to 11. 
you know, just like, okay, this is the last big one. We got to just turn, we had a course correct from the second film, which was really divisive. So we're just going to throw you as much Star Wars imagery and iconography as we can. Doesn't really have to make sense. Uh, you know, it's definitely, it doesn't look like it's going to be any kind of like character driven something or other. And it's, you know, we haven't had a real satisfying you know, as a trilogy as a whole, the first two parts are kind of disjunct. They don't really work well together. So we haven't really had a f- satisfying beginning and middle, so I don't really foresee us having a satisfying end. Yeah, I think this new film feels a little too juvenile to be some kind of grand conclusion. I don't mean to say that, like, I, I don't know, three films isn't enough, but, like, our characters in the film don't really feel all that incredible, right? Like... I remember by Return of the Jedi, like, Luke and Han and Leia, like, there were all these, like, incredible, dynamic individuals in the galaxy. They weren't exactly, you know, they didn't have their their faces on posters or anything, but they're, like, they're given medals, and Luke has been training with Yoda, who is a a master, and he's been doing it, and he's wearing all black, and he's got this sick new lightsaber, and the Emperor's around, and, like, dude, the stakes are high. And I remember when Revenge of the Sith came out for for the prequel trilogy, like, leading figuring out how Anakin Skywalker was finally going to tip over into Darth Vader and how all of these relationships were going to be severed and and what was going to happen to Obi-Wan and Padme like that felt like it had so much tangible weight to it you know like oh god it's it's the end of something it's this is huge this one just kind of doesn't have that ray ray is an amateur jedi at best same with Kylo Ren, right? Like yeah. our our pilots are mediocre, except for for Poe Dameron, who's been a great pilot forever. Leia is going to be around for at least part of the film, we know, um, but she's even in even in the realm of the trilogy is older and winding down. There's no more Luke. There's no more Han. Like it just feels like a slow burnout instead of some kind of grand finale in a weird way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's just, it seems like they've thrown everything in the kitchen sink, uh, you know. And it's funny because, you know, they killed off Snoke in the second film, and he was obviously a stand-in for the Emperor in the first film. And then the the real Emperor is back again. So it's, it, it's like J.J. Abrams was just like, oh, let's get the nostalgia back before, you know... People want to see, and I mean, and that's, you know, that's fair enough. That's a criticism of, of the fans more than, than anything that they don't feel they can take risks with uh, the property anymore. So it's just, like I've said before, I'm just anxious for this trilogy to end and get onto something completely new. And I know there's trilogies coming in the 2020s that we'll have to wait for, but that's what I'm looking forward forward to. This is just too much of a you know, merchandising machine for them to take any kind of real artistic risks, I feel. I'm not sure whether or not you want to talk about it, but you've been arguing with people on the internet about this trailer. <laughs> I have. Uh, why? What, I mean, what's the general kind of... Because I know you're in a handful of threads, I'm sure, slinging shade, but... <laughs> That's right. What's, what's kind of the general thing here that well, some people are excited and some people aren't? What are we... Uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people are excited. Of course, a lot of people aren't. And I mean... It's a fun trailer, but it doesn't really make me excited. When I think about the the films I've been excited for this year from the trailer, I think of things like Joker. Like the trailer blew me away, and I watched it, you know, probably a dozen times. Uh, something like Midsummer as well, just like really captivated me, drew me in, um, and the trailer just looks really 
kind of generic and really bland. And we were talking about this last night that, you know, the poster also, the poster looks like something out of the 80s. It's like, oh, spaceships and light swords. It, it looks like a fantasy epic from the from the 80s. And we're so far past that. You got to kind of do something new. But a, a lot of people don't like it. I was attacked <laughs> personally because, you know, I said, I said, you know, uh, the trailer doesn't tell us anything about the plot. And there's no narrative thing. And someone said, well, you should be happy. People people are upset if they know too much. People are upset if they don't know enough. And I was just like, it just doesn't tell us about the plot. And I just wish it did. Like, that's, you know. And, and yes, it was, it was kind of cool in The Force Awakens to have all this mystery. But then we realized, oh, they just rehashed the first film. So if we would have known that going in, we probably wouldn't have been as ex- as excited. So I, there is a lot of fervor. That also being said, I could not buy tickets anywhere last night. Like I, I was going to buy some at Alamo and every Alamo in town was completely sold out. Every show on Thursday night, uh, you know, night before it re- it's officially released, completely sold out at Alamo. I had to wait till this morning to buy some tickets at a, at a lowly Cinemark because the site was crashing last night. Yeah, which is a surprise to me because uh, I'm not going to go see it opening night. I'll just see it, you know, opening weekend, I think, like the rest of us. Um, but I, I guess I, 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 I'm, I'm torn on this argument about whether or not the, the trailer should, so, should, should have plot, right? Because on the one hand, I, I love trailers that don't show plot. I love trailers that emote a feeling and not like, you know don't really reveal anything about what's going to happen in the film. But like we, we saw a teaser for this film and we knew it was coming. So like, what does this trailer actually show us and teach us? Nothing. It doesn't give us anything like we do. Okay, great. There's another star Wars coming. We knew that. Oh, it's going to have all the people that are in the last star Wars film. We knew that the emperor's involved somehow. We knew that like none of this is yeah. a surprise or different or new. So it doesn't actually accomplish anything as a trailer. It just reminds you, Hey, it's coming out. Get a ticket soon, you know. Like, yeah, it might as well be another teaser. Yeah, you're exactly right. The uh, you know that the normal form is you know teaser, trailer one, trailer two, film. Um, sometimes trailer one is also functions as the teaser. That was the case in in this as well. But but yeah, there, there's an art to the trailer, and to me, a trailer is supposed to get you excited for a movie, tell you a little bit about what it's going to be ab- about, and there's just all I see is just like an orgy of Star Wars images and iconography and like, you know, everything you've seen in every other uh, thing without any kind of hint about anything about the plot. And I cannot see, you know, and I feel bad because I, I liked Ray and Poe and Finn when we first met them. And I just feel like they haven't really done a lot and haven't really had a chance to go anywhere and develop as characters. Yeah. So that's the Star Wars trailer. We're gonna go see it. Rest assured. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm obviously we're not skeptical. Ha ha. Like I'm sure we're both gonna think it's fantastic. Um, it'll be something. So keep yeah. an eye out for Star Wars. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure I'm gonna enjoy it. I enjoyed the the other two. I do. I am a fan of this series. What despite what how I may sound sometimes. But it's okay, as I've been telling people online, it's okay to criticize things you like. It's okay to be a fan of something and criticize its shortcomings. I think that's totally valid. And speaking of being a fan of something and criticizing its shortcomings, we should talk about our final film of the episode. I can't wait to hear Andy's opinions on this because I think I feel very differently. I'm going to be taking the summary. The movie is Netflix's The Laundromat. Where the f*** is my money? Most of the time, we don't even know. (laughs) 
So The Laundromat is a Steven Soderbergh film that's very similar to The Big Short, right? It's about a financial crisis. We talked about this in the news earlier. Specifically, it's about the Panama Papers, or really how the Panama Papers were discovered and how that whole scandal unfolded. I'm almost disappointed we have to preface this by saying it's about the Panama Papers because I think it's a much more satisfying reveal to watch the film and discover that's where it's going. Right. Um, but I kind of knew that going in, so I feel okay about telling you that going in because it keeps you interested and keeps you going. Uh, the story is told by our two uh, leading antagonists, uh, Jürgen Mosak and uh, Ramon Fonseca, the two lawyers directly involved in the Panama Papers scandal. Uh, they're played by Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas. Uh, they kind of lead us through this interesting fourth wall breaking meta narrative uh, fairy tale kind of approach to storytelling. They, they explain at the beginning to the camera as they walk through kind of this uh, like history of money. Kind yeah, of. His, history of money and stuff. They kind of explain that this is a story that's scandalous, uh, that, that the two of them are playing people. It's, it's very meta, like I said, two of them are playing people who uh, would not be okay with the story being out, clearly, because Netflix is being sued by them. Um, they explain that we're going to be looking at a series of short stories, short films, essentially, or short tales that add up to one big scandal. And, and really, they describe them as fairy tales, how we're going to get there. Each one of these little stories has a handful of kind of interesting uh, of, of actors and actresses, really. Uh, we, we've got uh, Meryl Streep playing Ellen Martin, uh, kind, of, kind of our main lead in the film. Um, Jeffrey Wright is in this film. Sharon Stone is in this film. Uh, and there's a couple of other interesting interesting actors and actresses that turn up. David Schwimmer is in this movie. Robert Carlyle, the bad guy from Terminator 2, is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, what happens is our, our main character, in between the narrative bits of our two lawyers, our main character, Ellen Martin, um, her idyllic vacation kind of takes an unthinkable turn. And when she's trying to file insurance claims, she discovers she can't for some reason so she kind of chases chases up the ladder and and finds another roadblock and eventually overcomes all of these hurdles to get to the panama papers where the one percent of the world have all of their wealth and offshore bank accounts and that's a whole big scandalous thing um it's certainly a film uh it's 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 (laughs) it's it's it's, uh about an hour and 35 minutes i have some mixed opinions on it andy what did you think of the laundromat so I really enjoyed it, surprisingly. And I remember the quote that you said, uh, you know, because I've, I've said, you know, when I watch films on Netflix, a lot of times I'm distracted and I, you know, want to play on my phone. And you, and you had said, well, the film should be what keeps you engaged and it shouldn't matter. And that's actually how I was on this film. I was completely drawn in. I liked uh, Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas as the our narrators and who kind of take us through the history of money and also these different kind of illegal practices because we have like a chapter on shell companies another chapter on bribery and they they narrate and then we also kind of get a little vignette and again lots of fourth wall wall breaking and we have these these short little stories um and some of which are very heartbreaking meryl streep plays ellen martin whose husband the very beginning of the film dies in a boating accident and when she's trying to collect the insurance policy she keeps like you said running into roadblocks of saying oh no this company is actually owned by this company which is actually owned by this company but then sold and then it turns out no one actually owns it or no one is actually in charge you know no one will be held responsible because there's so much shifting and so much uh, kind of paper and things that exist on paper and not in real life and who's actually the owner of this. You know, many of the employees at Matza uh, Fonseca are the president of these companies. They're like, oh, you need to sign this so you can be the president. No, now 
you, now you've just been promoted. Now you're the president of this company, and it's all all to just hide wealth. Um, I really liked it, and I really like the uh, again our our main narrators, and I like the little vignettes, and I like this this. Uh, small um, cameos that that we see uh, from different different characters, big pretty big name people as well. I like I said, it it enjoyed it. it reminded me a lot of something like The Big Short. It's trying to very find an entertaining way to for to explain financial crimes to you. Yeah, so I'm pretty much in the opposite boat from Andy. Uh, specifically, <laughs> when you said you know a film should draw you in, you shouldn't be on your phone. That didn't happen for me. I was bored. <laughs> I couldn't stay focused. I, I <laughs> And, it, and it's tough for me because I, I, I do not find a lot of interest in financial dramas. I just don't. I never have. They're dry and nothing cool happens. Nobody dies. Uh, and I struggled with the big short back in the day. But that one I was I was able to wrap my head around a bit more because it's much more of a central storyline. It's much more kind of focused on our singular characters. Whereas this movie essentially is telling short stories kind of in order um although it jumps around to different countries and different settings different characters it made it tough for me to really get rooted in any characters and stick with them and care about them and if i don't care about any of the characters i don't care about the story i do like the way the story was told the way things jump around and we have our narrators kind of slipping in and out uh, like a, like a dickensian almost uh, uh presence in the film i thought that was really neat i, I like the variety of settings i like the variety of stories i just didn't like the overall story the overall like message uh, i just wasn't for me i just couldn't stay tuned in but there is a lot about this movie that works we should talk about it i think the best place to get started is kind of our I think probably our little stories, right? We, we've got we've got a few different kind of angles to tackle here. Since right. you paid much more attention than I did, uh, do you want to jump in on this one? Yeah, I can't remember all of them, but like I said, the first one is uh, it's kind of about shell companies. That it's all this this company owns that company owns that company, and it's all meant to hide wealth. It's all meant to disperse liability or eliminate liability from any one person. As we meet again, Meryl Streep, uh, she and uh, has a tragedy kind of happen uh, right away, and there's there's we meet other, uh, um, you know Jeffrey Wright is in this. He he plays one of the uh, he kind of is an offshore guy in the uh, Barbados or somewhere like that, and he's you know he works for Maltec Fonseca as well, and he's um, he has he lives a dual life, and he's making a lot of money. Um, I can't remember remember all of them again. There's one on on bribery, which is is pretty interesting. Um, and yeah, it just it slowly walks you through uh, these different uh, financial crimes or the different parts and mechanisms and who's involved and how they do it and why they do it and that whole thing. Yeah, and I think like the big short kind of jumped around. I think uh, this movie jumps around in a much more, I guess, charming way. Our settings are very different. They're very colorful. They're very bright. They're very saturated. And they look visually very distinct, right? When we're in scenes with Meryl Streep, she's in Detroit. Things are very blue. Or she'll go to Las Vegas. Things are a little yellow and kind of vanilla, almost Wes Anderson color. At one point, we're over in... So, like China and things are very vibrant and kind of red and white and at one point I think we're in Africa and it's very yellow our scenes with our narrators as they kind of slip in and out of the tale um, are, are usually very they're like on a beach or in a really nice club like visually it's very engaging like each one of these places is really interesting our characters feel very heartfelt because they're all played by pretty good actors and actresses who have, have a good history of this stuff so 
all of that felt good. I, I think really just the script is kind of where I stumbled. It's just a lot of confusing concepts in a financial drama, right? You've got to explain a lot to an audience right. to make sure they understand what's happening. And like, I really struggle with that. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Uh, I For me, all that worked. I definitely liked the, the financial thing and them breaking down uh, how these these things happen and, and who's involved. Um, I, I was going to say uh, with Meryl Streep, I thought she did a fantastic job of this like uh, kind of like Aaron Brockovich character where she's incredibly frustrated with the system. She's grieving because her husband's just died um, and she's, you know, she's going to lawyer after lawyer after, you know, hunt, hunting down addresses and buildings to find out who's in charge, who's going to be held responsible, you know, for this life insurance policy. Yeah. You know, speaking of Aaron Brockovich, it's probably important at this point we mention this film was directed by Steven Soderbergh, who's the director of Aaron Brockovich and Oceans 11 and 12 and 13 and Matt Damon's The Informant and a couple of other movies we've seen uh, for the show. And I think he does a pretty fine job. I think he does some things that are experimental, Uh, maybe because he knew this was a Netflix picture or... I'm not sure, but it definitely feels different for him, and that feels fresh. It feels like he does some things that are new, he takes some chances, he tells a story in a different way, and I thought that was charming. Like I said, the way the story is told, I like. It's the story itself. That's what that's what, that's what I stumbled on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we should talk I, about... Go well, I was going to say, I, I, I think I would have enjoyed this in seeing this in, in the theater, probably more than I did Zombieland, honestly. I might have as well, but I think I still would have been bored. I would have watched more, and maybe that would have helped me stay more tuned in, but I think I still would have struggled with it. And part of the reason that is, again, because of the way the story is told, this is based on true events, and our characters, again, in a very meta fashion, explain that the people they're representing would not enjoy watching this film, that uh, you know, when it comes to things like offshore shell corporations, that other people in the world have them. At some points, it feels like we have genuine... Well, towards the end of the film, we do have genuine fourth wall breaks, not only from characters, but from actors and actresses in the film. It really loosens up in a way that's charming and fun, uh, in, in a way that I enjoy. Um, a, a fine scene in particular, uh, towards the end of the film, our, two of our characters are standing in a prison and the camera keeps zooming out and zooming out and zooming out until you see the edges of the soundstage they're on, you know, in like in a uh-huh. Warner brothers lot. And then it pans and follows our characters as they walk off the soundstage and just start walking around the studio, like really interesting and engaging and experimental. I love that kind of stuff, but what they were talking about while they were doing it, I couldn't <laughs> care less about. Right. what do you think of that? I, like I said, I thought that was really cool. The fourth wall breaks are they're small initially and they do get bigger and bigger. And like I said, they, they start off as narrators and they're talking to the camera. So our, our two main leads, that's kind of how they're driving through the story. And it's interesting because they, they play kind of both sides of the coin. They tell you what they were doing and how it was illegal. And then they also said, you know, we're just here to represent our clients. We're just trying to do our best for them. We're just doing our jobs. I, that, you know, that kind of talk. So here's, here's a question. And I know this is subjective, but, you know, entertain me for a moment, if you will. Why, why do I struggle with a movie like this, right? Because I think I think a lot of people do. I think there's a reason this isn't a wide release. Like, this is a streaming film for a reason. Is it because it's difficult concepts? Or is it because maybe it's just not a satisfying tale? Because it's based on true events and you know there's not a good conclusion at the end of it, you know? That, that could be part of it. I, I mean, I think it's just the subject matter. I mean, sometimes some subjects, they, they just don't pull you in no matter 
how good they are or how much uh, they they try. The ending is kind of like you you said it's a bit nebulous. I'm not real sure what we're supposed to get out. You know, it, it kind of has it's saying something about like you know tax reform uh, law legislation that, but it's it's kind of weak. And some people, I mean, some people did go down for this. Some people, like the prime minister of I think it was Iceland or something, had to resign. There there were people who were genuinely affected, but there were lots of people who weren't, and lots of people who you know nothing they did was most of these people did was illegal. You know, and that was, the, and that's kind of the whole problem with the system and what they kind of tell you in the movie. It's like no one did anything illegal. Everything, it's the laws are the, are the problem, right? There's a very there's a very satisfying news clip shown towards the end of of, of uh, former President Barack Obama speaking about the Panama Papers crisis when he said, you know, nobody nobody did anything illegal, but the laws are so loose that you can dance between them and nothing happens. You know. That's where the problem is. It's an issue of democracy. Right, exactly. And um, there's the, there's a great, sorry, just cut you off here. There's a great speech towards the end uh, regarding uh, the whistleblower who kind of undid the whole thing. At one point, there's Meryl Streep is directly quoting that individual, uh, just reading right off their manifesto. Here's exactly what they think. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, I guess really that's the message of the story, right? Like American laws and what we've, what we've afforded for yeah. capitalism. Um. But man, that stuff just bores me. <laughs> it's like watching paint dry. I wanted to mention real quick. So uh, we get a we we have a couple of uh, cameos by Will Forte and Chris Parnell. Um, they are they are credited as Doomed Gringo Number One and Doomed Gringo Number Two. They are in this film. That's right. That is worth worth mentioning because I, I did enjoy their their small parts. Well, any other thoughts on this before we move on to recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend the laundromat? I think I would. I I genuinely enjoyed it. Uh, I heard a little bit of talk about, you know, maybe some Oscar buzz for the performances. The performances are really good. I think it's doing what it's explaining. It's doing it as much in as much of a fun way and understandable way as it can. It is on Netflix. So if you have it, you know, you can spend a couple, couple of couple hours watching it. If it's not your thing, uh, like if it's financial crimes, don't, don't entice you, then, you know, maybe it's not for you. Yeah, I think I'm going to be probably in the same boat with caveats. Uh, yeah, if you watch something like The Big Short, because this movie is very inspired by that, I think you'll love this movie. If you if you go for, for movies like The Ides of March or other like <laughs> Aaron Brockovich or other like complex dramas told through the eyes of a select group of kind of small time individuals, I think you'll like this picture. But like... Man, I just couldn't get into it, and and normally I go for stuff like this, and I think if I had watched it in theater, I'd feel differently. But for for being on Netflix, it's probably worth your time if if you're into it. If you've heard this review and, and you're still intrigued, go for it. But it's definitely not for everybody. It's a, it's a specific audience. It's kind of aimed at, and uh, if it's for you, it's for you. And with that, we should probably wrap the show proper. Andy, what are we watching next week? I'm really excited about it next week, uh, especially after this kind of uh, mediocre week at, at the movies. Uh, Rob, Roger, Eb- Roger, is it Roger or Robert? Eggers? Robert. Robert Eggers, uh, The Lighthouse, the new horror movie uh, featuring uh, Willem Dafoe and, oh, I'm blanking, Batman. <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Thank you. Uh, We've been really excited about this movie all year. I've been looking forward to it. Robert Eggers did uh, The Witch was his last film, which is kind of a horror classic at at this point. So we're really looking forward to that. And the foreign film Parasite uh, from Korean director Bong Joon-ho. 
Junho. Bong Joon-ho, yeah. That's right, Bong Joon-ho, uh, which we've heard nothing but buzz about. It's been submitted for uh, the Best uh, International Film uh, Oscar contender. It's supposed to be really good. I don't even really know what it's about other than uh, kind of a poor family t- preying on a, a, a more wealthy family. That's all I know. Um, but that's what we're watching. I'm really looking forward to both of these. Me too. Then uh, this, this upcoming week should be like a... a I'm hoping it will turn out to be like a week when like I love being a part of a movie podcast because every once in a while we'll land on a week when it's just like two back to back solid double features. And I don't mean to ride the hype train, but like I think there's some real potential in the two of these. <laughs> like there's there's Oscar buzz around them. There's award buzz like it should be some good, good cinema. Right. And to take this back to, you know, the Rise of Skywalker trailer, like, I mean, we've been talking about the lighthouse for about three, four months now. We've been really hyped by the trailer and by just the style of it and the director. And it's we're really excited to see this. And I wish that's how I felt about the rise of Skywalker. (laughs) Yeah, not quite, but to be fair, there aren't eight other lighthouse films before this one. So hooray for original films. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, email us at mail at offscriptfilmview.com and weigh in, or maybe have a review of your own. Tell us what you thought. We'll read it on the air. We promise. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, run all that social media stuff. So come check it out. And if there's anything you can do for us, you can tell your friends about the show and, or leave a rating or review. Huh? How about that? Tip your, tip your cocktail podcast waitress or whatever and let us know that you enjoyed the show. It means a ton to us and it really helps us out. You have no idea. Uh, any other plugs I'm missing, Andy? I think that's, I think it's got it, right? No, I know I, I did it kind of out of order. I okay. think, that, I I think, think that's it. <laughs> From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.